Specialty Stories, session number 169. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians talking about their specialty. And this week is no different. We have a neurologist on, Dr. Justin Martello, talking about his specialty as a movement disorder and Parkinson's specialist. Dr. Martello is going to talk about his experience, his journey to becoming a neurologist specializing in movement disorders, what he likes about it, what he doesn't like about it, the training path to become a movement disorder specialist, and much more. We start the conversation with how Dr. Martello first became interested in neurology and movement disorder. So I was kind of unique in in both of those uh, kind of interests. So neurology started for me in the third grade, uh, oddly enough. So um, reading uh, actually the biography and, and stories written by Dr. Ben Carson, who um, was a very famous uh, <laughs> you know, pediatric neurosurgeon before he entered uh, political life. But he, you know, he writes a lot of great stories. And, and even though he was a surgeon, he wrote a lot of, about a lot of cool neurology cases. And so that kind of interested me in, you know, the inner workings of the brain and, and the connection between the rest of your body and, and kind of the power of the brain. So that just led me into eventually doing a uh, high school internship uh, in my junior year. And I randomly did it with a neurologist that specialized in movement disorders. And so that got me into that interest of the whole movement disorder world. Um, so that was more random. But but after a year working with uh, this um you know, specialists that just from there kind of skyrocketed me into this specialty. Before we jump any further, I think a lot of people that for the first time is hearing this movement disorder specialty. Talk about the the diagnoses and, and pathologies that you see as a movement disorder specialist. Sure. So yeah, for movement disorders, the majority of it is going to be Parkinson's disease, but also um, what we call essential tremors. So essential tremors is usually the kind of tremor that involves your hands shaking when you're using them or holding something um, or writing. And that is the most common new movement disorder that exists. But uh, a lot of people don't necessarily seek medical attention for that all the time. So it's more Parkinson's. Huntington's disease uh, is within the movement disorder world. Pretty much anything that has some kind of abnormal movement to your body, uh, with the exception of seizures, is kind of falls under under this heading. So uh, people with balance issues can fall under this specialty. People with um, abnormal muscle contractions or spasms, sometimes we call it dystonia, fall into this. Um, so those are kind of the big overarching overarching kind of uh, uh, things that we see in movement disorders. What kind of traits do you think lead to a physician being good, a good movement disorder specialist? So one of the great things that I, you know, I like about this specialty is not only do, is it, it's very visual. So, and very interactive with the patient. So, you know, from the minute they come in, I'm kind of eyeing them up and down, looking for any kind of abnormal movements that they may have. Uh, they're walking to, 
uh, interacting with them physically. So the exam is really important. Um, you know, feeling if for any stiffness, rigidity, having them do certain things um, in my clinic, which is, you know, helpful to diagnose them. And then going along with that, the diagnosis and the treatment is very much consistent with this whole idea of the art of medicine. So there's it's not a cookie cutter way to approach these patients, whether you're talking from diagnosis to treatment. Um, there are, yes, guidelines that we follow and certain structures that we follow when we're treating these patients. But uh, it's, it's a lot of patient dependent on, on, on treatments. And also with diagnoses, we don't have simple blood tests or imaging tests that give us the diagnosis. So much of these is very clinical. You know, you walk in uh, to, my, to my office and I can give you the diagnosis right then and there, which is quite unique for a lot of uh, different specialties in medicine where you come in, you give them the story, they say, we need a further testing, you come back or, or you know, and you go to the next step, the next step, and, and you could get your answer by seeing me within the first visit, which is satisfying to a lot of patients, especially as they have seen probably several other uh, specialists or, or their primary doctor, they don't get an answer for many months to sometimes years, and then they finally get this answer, and, and it's kind of, uh, you know, again, satisfying to them to, to finally get that answer. For the kind of general neurology residents, for the medical students, what are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions around movement disorder? I would say that, um, you know, a lot of times in with just neurology, I would say in general, there's a sense of what we used to say uh, or what was used to kind of refer to neurologists as adios and or diagnose and adios, right? <laughs> so that we could diagnose things um, and, and, super intelligent when it comes to that, right? But when it comes to doing anything about it, there's nothing you can do. You just tell them what they have and then send them on their way. And really, especially in this uh, subspecialty, which is kind of the other main factor of why I really loved it, is that even though we don't have any cures for the diseases that I treat, the, um, the impact of the medications that we have, the therapies that we can offer from surgery uh, to pr other procedures, like I do Botox procedures, this can, uh, they all, especially the medicines can have a dramatic impact to their life and their quality of life. And so, um, you know, these are the, the kind of impact that patients will want to hug you the next time they see you, they feel that much better. Um, things that you can see real time. So I do uh, what we call deep brain stimulation programming, where I can literally on a device, on an iPad, program the settings for their electrode that's in their brain and cause them to have physical symptoms right in front of me or benefits, right? <laughs> Actually, it's, it's interesting. You can even cause, uh, which we don't obviously do on purpose, but stroke-like symptoms right in person. So it's just the power of technology with this subspecialty that you can see real-time effects. Um, and, and also, it, you can just make people feel so much better uh, that they, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty rewarding uh, you know, versus other subspecialties where they're really taking these medicines and you're you're improving, quote unquote, their their maybe their life expectancy with blood pressure medicines, but they never really understand or or maybe feel right the, why they're taking the meds. They know they feel why they're they're taking these meds and and they want to take them, and so they're on meds several times a day. But the adherence to these medicines are great because they just feel better when they do it. 
Now, I, I've talked to a lot of, of physicians and, and uh, obviously medical students and, and pre-med students, and a lot of people go into medicine because they love that Sherlock Holmes type aspect of, of medicine, really figuring it out. It sounds like, and obviously I'm a little uh, biased or a little bit more educated potentially because my wife is a neurologist, but the it, it sounds like what you're saying is there's a lot of that in movement disorder where, where patients are coming to you saying, help me figure out what's going on. And you're able to, to kind of figure that out for them. That's yeah, that's exactly correct. Um, in, in neurology in general, but especially with this subspecialty, it's, it's that much more. So, um, like I said, we don't have any real testing to rely on to help us with this. So it's really taking a good history, taking a good exam, um, sometimes getting clues from their caregivers, uh, and things like that. So that, that's, yeah, that's a great point. And I would say that that's especially within this uh, subspecialty. And, and actually, even expanding on that, I would say neurology in general, but especially with this uh, movement disorder specialty, you know, this is really the, the where the last frontier of medicine is, is happening, that we are learning so much uh, of neurology, even over the past 10, 20 years. And it's even growing exponentially going forward, where as with other specialties, like we know everything there is to know about the heart, the lungs, you know, kidneys. This is something that the brain, I mean, we're, we, we know a lot, but there's so much more that we still don't know and we're still learning. So if you really want to be kind of on the cutting edge of medicine and, and things that we don't know about and learning about and, and discovering, this is, this is it. What does a typical day or typical week look like for you? So I see patients um, day in and day out, um, four and a half days of clinics per week, um, which is a little bit more than what you would necessarily get in like the academic world. Um, but it's nice because I have, I break down, you know, my days into different types of clinics. So I have like a whole half day where I just do Botox injections. I have another half day where I just do deep brain stimulation programming. I do, um, you know, and then we kind of block out our time for new patients, follow up patients, um, you know, I do, I, I am a clinical trial site for two clinical trials. So I also have time built in to do some research. And that's pretty much just because I, I think it's important to have that to offer patients, but it's not necessarily, you know, required for my position. But, uh, and, and it's nice because in the movement disorder world, you can kind of, uh, the need is there that either you, if you want to enter academia and, and do more uh, of that kind of work, grant work, you know, clinical trials, that's great. There's also a need uh, clinically to see patients. Uh, there's not too many of us. So uh, the demand is there to really see as many patients as we can see um, and to be that resource. So I'm the only one in my state who's a movement source specialist. So they all get flooded into me. So that's what I do 100% of my time. Um, and I can do, you know, research if I wanted to. But, you know, I, I definitely just appreciate more of taking care of patients clinically. Yeah. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Yeah. So, I mean, I, um, like I said, I have four and a half days, which, you know, frees up my Friday afternoons. Um, you know, we, whenever you join a private inst a hospital institution, a lot of times they'll require a call of you. But for me, it's once every couple months uh, on a weekend. So it's not too often. So it is a nice uh, work-life balance. There's no emergencies within the movement disorder specialty. So it's not like stroke where I'm on call and I have to run into the hospital. 
if, if there is an emergency, we just tell them to go to the hospital and get seen and be admitted. So there's no really, really urgency to, which I like uh, that I don't need to be kind of that, you know, uh, rapidly assessing someone. I mean, there are some rare movement disorder emergencies, but they don't come up that much. What does the training path look like to become a movement disorder specialist? So you do neurology residency, which requires a year of medic medical internship, um, which is actually helpful for my specialty, and I, I can explain why. But uh, so you do a year of medicine, and then three years of neurology residency, and then a year or two of movement disorder fellowship. Um, and so that's kind of the the extent. I only did a year. It depends on how much again interest you are in research and in academia. That may require a second year. Um, I was actually able to do research within my first year and within residency. Again, I kind of knew I wanted to do this, so got involved with research early on. Um, but uh, it's the other thing I was going to mention with having a medical internship. Um, when you're taking care of these patients, especially Parkinson's patients, you get to also put back on your internal medicine cap uh, because Parkinson's really affects their whole body all of their different organ systems. And instead of really listening to their symptoms and saying, oh, that's a cardiology issue or, oh, that's a, a pulmonary issue, I really take it upon myself and, and really have grown to learn to manage different things that Parkinson's affects, whether it's blood pressure regulation issues to sleeping issues, depression, um, constipation issues. So instead of referring them out, I kind of address them all myself, which is nice because you're kind of a one-stop shop for them. You feel like you're really helping them in all these different ways. You're not, you're not referring them to a million different specialists. You're kind of taking it all in one. And again, you get to put on that internal medicine cap. What other specialties do you work the closest with? I'd say probably I work closest with cardiology. Uh, again, there's a lot of um, blood pressure and heart rate fluctuations. And a lot of times you want to rule out other um, kind of causes to these things besides Parkinson's. So I work uh, closely with cardiology. I work closely in general with their primary doctors because, again, you know, they're coming up with all these questions like, I have this symptom. Is this from Parkinson's or is this not? And a lot of times the primary doctors don't know. So they're, they'll reach out to me and they'll ask me, Hey, you know, um, is this something Parkinson's related? And, and it and it's random things that sometimes Parkinson's can do. And so you you know, just answering those questions and being a quick resource is kind of the key. For the future primary care physician out there, what do you want them to know about what you're doing day in and day out as a movement disorder specialist to to help them help their patients? Yeah, so I think that the biggest thing, because the reality is that because my subspecialty, there's not too many people out there doing it, many people are still managed um, by primary care for their Parkinson's. If you have that resource within your community of access to a movement source specialist, it is recommended to be seen by them at least once a year because there are so many things that come up with Parkinson's that, and so many new things, right? I mean, over the past five years, every year we've had two or three new medications every year for Parkinson's, um, just new things that we're learning about the disease. And so it's, it's hard to keep up with, which again, why there's a subspecialty for this. So it's, it's just good to know that there are new things coming up, trying to be somewhat aware of the new medications, that um, it's okay to start your patients on medications, that really it's a quality of life issue. A lot of my medications that I use for Parkinson's or that we use in general are not uh, that 
uh, scary or or really if uh, you know impactful on the on you know for side effects. And so it's okay to start them on treatment. You don't need to the, for them to wait to see a movement disorder specialist. That even the mainstay of therapy, carbidopa levodopa, which has been around for now fifty years. Um, is is an okay thing to try and sometimes helpful to try. Sometimes we use the medications as a test to see if they have Parkinson's. If they improve and they should improve in a dramatic way, it's kind of a clincher that they have Parkinson's disease. And why, why wait to start your patients on that when, when you can start it, see how well they do, and then, and then eventually get them plugged in with the movement source specialist. So that's probably one of the things that I would say to them. You you talked earlier about being involved in research. Uh, you are out in a community setting, not at an academic setting. I think a lot of students have this misconception that research has to take place in an academic setting. For you, what was the kind of decision algorithm for you to go out to the community versus staying in an academic setting? I would say I appreciate seeing patients uh, clinically more than focusing on grants. And and really in academia, you're only going to be doing two or three half days of clinical week. So you don't see that many patients, which is also a misconception that these are the experts, right, who go to academia. They they know the most. And, and they probably do know the most about what they research, right, uh, and about what they study. But as far as patient numbers, I probably have seen more patients uh, in the last year than some of my mentors have in five years, right? So when you think about it in that way, um, to become really an expert clinician, right, an expert uh, in your field uh, that that you've seen so many patients, that's kind of just um, rung true with what I wanted to do. I also like being in a community setting where I'm the only one, so everyone refers to me, and, and I'm able to be the expert in my community. I can outreach in the community. I have more time to do things like volunteer and and and, and talk at support groups and things like that, whereas you, you kind of are left in what we call the ivory tower of academia, where you're kind of set apart maybe from the community. Um, also, academic centers tend to be close around each other, so there's a lot of you and and. And that's nice for definitely kind of being collegial with your with with kind of talking to your colleagues about hard cases. But I feel like I can do that with my old mentors. Yes, we're not in close proximity, but I can still connect with them. It's 2020. You know, there's enough ways to do that. And I still get involved with there's dinner programs um, that we share kind of cases with. So you can still get that, but still be, you know, kind of in the community setting and and really uh, serve that way. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into movement disorder? Oh man, that's a good question. You know, I've been interested in this for, for most of my life. So it's, it's hard to know. Uh, I, I guess, um, you know, I think this, this rings true for, for most of medicine, but because with movement disorders, we have so many new medications out there. A lot of them are brand name medicines. Um, a lot of them require a lot of paperwork insurance denials, appeals, and you hear this throughout medicine, but I think a little bit more so in, in my subspecialty where we have all these branded medicines. I mean, there there's definitely uh, a lot of generic ones and, and the mainstay of therapy is still generic, but uh, so it's, it's a little bit harder to fight for your patients to get a lot of these great medicines covered. Um, and so that's uh, again, I, just an annoyance that you wish wasn't there and, and um, you hear about, but you don't really get to experience until you're out there doing it and you get all this paperwork at the end of the day to fill out. And, and it's just, a, it's a game that the insurance uh, companies play uh, to try and not cover all this stuff. And it's just a, a, a bad game that you have to play with them. 
Was it Parkinson's where just relatively recently, less than a month ago, I think they, there was news, at least in, in mainstream media, about the, a gene being found tied to tau and and how it's created. Is that Parkinson's? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. So Parkinson's involves uh, tau buildup in the brain. Um, so yeah, that's and and again, we're finding new genes out all the time. Now we're up to. Uh, something crazy like 30 or 40 genes that have some connection with Parkinson's. So uh, it's an ever-growing field. I mean, we used to think it was all environmental, which it's still a majority of it is. But now we're learning about this interplay of genes and, and, and why certain farmers, right? So uh, a lot of pesticides can, can lead to Parkinson's that why do not all farmers get Parkinson's just a few farmers. So it's, it's a, it's an interesting kind of field that we're again, learning more about is why do people get Parkinson's to begin with? So, yeah. With the advent uh, of, of CRISPR and other gene modifying treatments, do you see a world where someone comes in with Parkinson's and we, we have a treatment to go fix their genes or Huntington's and we can go fix their genes and your job's done? So, yeah. So Huntington's, yes. And and that's the, the funny thing. It's just, um, you know, out of all the diseases uh, and as awful as Huntington's disease is, and it's probably top two um, worst neurological diseases you can get, um, probably ALS being worse than that. Um, and as complex as Huntington's can be as far as all the symptoms involved and, and how it affects your body, that is something that it's one gene involved and everyone with Huntington's disease has an error in that gene. It's something that we know where the error is, that it's a simple quote unquote error that's easily fixable. So that is definitely curable with CRISPR uh, in the future. Uh, something that Hopefully, we will never have Huntington's uh, affecting anyone in the future, which will be awesome. So that is something, yes. For things like Parkinson's where, um, yes, there are certain uh, types of Parkinson's disease where it's clearly uh, genetically related and everyone within the family line has a risk of it if they get this gene. That's, of course, I think where CRISPR will will play a role, but uh, it's it's very complex with the interplay of environmental risk factors that again, we don't know all of the environmental risk factors that play a role in influencing Parkinson's and even within the genes uh, it's not as simple as uh, this same repeat uh, or, or this similar uh, area in the gene is always affected. It could be different parts of the gene. And, and so it's just, it's a little bit more complex, unfortunately. Yeah. Makes sense. What do you like the most about being a movement disorder specialist? I think it goes back to um, the the impact that you can have on patients. Again, when you're when you learn and when you kind of understand that there's no cure for these diseases, it can be depressing at times, right? You're giving these patients diagnoses of a degenerative condition where they can't do much about, with the exception of exercise, can slow it down. But um, with medications, but at the same time, you can tell them, "Look, I'll be with you. I, I I'm going to." be with you during this whole journey. So you get to really connect with these patients. You get to um, give them therapies that are really impactful to their quality of life so they can live great lives um, that uh, the procedures are involved, right? So everything from deep brain simulation programming, which is neat to um, doing Botox injections. So you get that procedural end of things, you get the clinical end of things, 
Um, you get to be their primary doctor in some c- circumstances where you treat other aspects of their condition and of their body. Um, and then ultimately, I mean, this patient population, uh, it's a good group. And, and the reason for that is that they, um, they've lived full lives, right? Um, you get Parkinson's usually late 50s, early 60s, sometimes late 60s. And so they live a majority of their life. Um, they work till normal, uh, you know, ages. They they realize it's important to keep moving physically, mentally, socially. And so these aren't the patients that go on disability that wants you to, you know, uh, that wants everyone to feel sorry for them. They want to keep active. They're, they want to be motivated. They want to keep going. They want to work with you. They want to take their medicine. So they're just a great population to work with. Um, it's really uh, just satisfying to, to follow these patients over time. And even though they get worse, and that's sad that you're there to hold their hand, to be supportive to their caregivers, their loved ones. So it's it's really being a part of their family. And, and it's just a kind of a great feeling as a clinician to do that. What do you like the least? The least. Um, again, I think when they get worse and there's fewer things to offer them, and don't get me wrong, I mean, at this point, we have over 20 different medications for Parkinson's and more advanced therapies to offer and a lot of great things down the road and research trials. But they get to a certain part and, um, you know, they can't walk you know, their balance is awful. They have issues swallowing. They can have issues with um, psychosis or hallucinations. Um, And sometimes we only have a certain amount of medications to help with those things and therapies to help. And then it starts impacting caregivers. um, And besides trying to be supportive and being, you know, a listening ear to them, there's not much we can always do to support them. So I think it's just that frustration of, knowing that they're, you know, towards their end of their life, that they're in later stages. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that can be sad um, to go through with them. For the student listening to this now who may be interested in movement disorder uh, as a specialty, what do you say to them to encourage them on this journey for them to go get more information and learn more? So, you know, the, one of the things, at least I'll speak for myself and, and you know, the, my mentors were always willing to, to have uh, students come through and shadow us and learn from us because we know that there's such uh, a need of more people to go into this subspecialty. And, the, and you're not set up, uh, and I'll explain, you're not really set up to go into this subspecialty. First of all, in neurology, there's still kind of a, a huge need for neurologists across the country. You don't get neurology, first of all, in a lot of med schools until later on in med school. Some med schools don't even require it to be a clinical. Tr- you know, you may get the basic science of neurology, but you yeah. don't really are required to get the clinical uh, need of it until later in med school. So a lot of people aren't going into neurology residencies because they're not getting into late. And then you know, movement disorders is, is largely outpatient, right? Um, you're not spending a lot of time in the inpatient team seeing a lot of movement disorder cases, although, again, they can go through, of course, the hospital, but um, you're seeing mostly strokes. And so you don't get a lot of that outpatient experience until later in neurology residency. So by then, you've already picked a fellowship. So we definitely highly welcome and encourage students to come through our clinic, see what we do, 
Um, I, I doubt you'll ever find a movement disorder specialist that does not want to accept a student um, into their clinic. So I think that's the best way. I mean, you know, we say if you've met one person with Parkinson's, you met one person with Parkinson's. It is a spectrum of a disease. We, our subspecialty is a spectrum. And so really, yes, you can read about it. You can watch videos. Those things are great. But seeing patient after patient, I mean, every I'm, I, I swear, if you go to one day of a movement source specialist, you'll say, wow, every patient was interesting and different and just, and that's, that's helpful. That, that helps kind of t- uh, defend against burnout in this because, you know, you're seeing something different all the time. So, and that's the exciting thing too about this, especially. So that's probably the best thing is just getting, getting connected with a movement source specialist and just reaching out, even sending, you know, an open email and saying, hey, I know you're in a community. Do you mind if I hang out with you? And, they won't, they won't say no, I promise you. Where does movement disorder as a subspecialty of neurology land on the spectrum of bow tie wearing neurologists? Uh, so <laughs> this is a, a newer subspecialty. <laughs> subspecialty. So we tend to be, uh, there's this new wave of generation of, of neurologists moving through. We're not the stuffy old, uh, you know, bow tie wearing <laughs> neurologists. Uh, we we're we're down to earth, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of new things, a lot of cool things going on with moonosaurs and actually even breaking away from the typical old, what kind of medications do we have, you know, other alternative medical therapies that we're, you know, learning more about that's really helpful for Parkinson's. And, and I think when you deal with Parkinson's, you're, you're open to those things because again, you want anything that we can offer to these patients to make them feel better, right? So if it's going to be acupuncture, if it's going to be a boxing class, um, we're all for it, you know? And so I think, um, it's uh, it's definitely a, a nicer thing to go into. I think the colleagues are much more down to earth now, and and yes, you have the the older you know um, ones that are, are are true to to being mentors and and really intelligent, really smart. Not saying that we aren't, but I think we we're definitely more open to to being creative with their their therapies now. All right, there you have it. Again, Dr. Justin Martello, a neurologist specializing in movement disorders and Parkinson's. If you are interested in that specialty, check out movementdisorders.org, which is the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society. Again, movementdisorders.org. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.